asinine preconceived notion or concept that when someone posts a video, they're putting themselves out there to be judged, and it's your right to be disrespectful, disguising it as your opinion. Narcissism. However, when it comes to me, most of you are about as fierce as my morning cornflakes. And you may not have had the backyard, but you did have that unwanted pregnancy because you fucked the passenger, not the driver. And you didn't have to go to college to major in being a basic bitch because it's your foundation. And I'm not talking about that yellow shit that you plaster over your face and then layer it with filter after filter because you watched a YouTube tutorial video in the dark. So I know my presence threatens you, but guess what? I have a right to be here, and I claim it. So prepare to get your soul slaughtered and your edges smashed follicle by follicle. Try me if you want to. Happy hump day. Hey, Hung Up family, welcome to another episode of the Hung Up Podcast, a Philly-based podcast that centers culture and society from a Black queer perspective. I'm Eric Cole, the host and producer of this here show. And if you're not already subscribed after you listen to this episode and you like it, join the Hung Up family. You can find the show on podcasts and social media platforms by searching at Hung Up Pod. That's H-U-N-G-U-P-P-O-D. And the donation link is in the bio. This week, I'm hung up on Aaliyah. Her one in a million album hit music platforms a few weeks ago. And yesterday was the anniversary of her death. I'll never forget coming home from school and my dad telling me that Aaliyah passed. Growing up, she was really a force in my life. Um, I was the only child for a while. I spent a lot of time in my bedroom listening to music and her CD stayed on. But a lot of us loved her music because she was so relatable. When she came out, she had that funky street style. And, you know, before she passed, we got to see Aaliyah a little more mature. And she wasn't afraid to show some skin and be sexy. We loved it. We really do miss you, Aaliyah. I'm hung up. This week, I want you all to get into part two of the conversation I had last week with actor director, producer, and writer, Doug Spearman. Last week, we talked about his career before Noah's Ark, and then we got into his role on Noah's Ark, and he reflected on some other pivotal moments in his life. For this episode, we dive into his latest project, From Zero to I Love You, a movie he wrote and directed in 2019. It explored a relationship between an open gay man, played by Daryl Stevens, and a married man who struggled with his sexuality. If you haven't seen the movie, I recommend you check it out. Otherwise, this episode is going to be one big spoiler because Doug and I get into the scenes. We get into the lives of the actors on and off the screen. And we get into the overall theme and message behind the movie. Enjoy. thing ever starts to get weird either one of us can walk no questions no apologies okay i know what i'm getting into <laughs> you in this handshaking thing done deal <laughs> you're so fucking weird 
Hey, Younger family, welcome back to the show. Actor, writer, producer, Doug Spearman. Doug, thank you for coming back to the show. Oh, you're you're welcome. I feel like we had a couple. We left a couple things on the table. <laughs> we did. We had a little unfinished business. <laughs> Remind me of that movie, uh, Casper. Um, the friendly ghost. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> they, they wow. like, you are younger than me. Like I, it, like I've never seen that movie. <laughs> it's a silly movie with uh, Christina Ritchie. Okay, I grew up on the cartoon. I have no idea what the movie's about. Like there was okay. no way in hell I was going to see that movie as a grown up. <laughs> so random of me. Sorry, you. It is the middle. It is the middle of a work day. Yeah, exactly. It's where I'm at. It's the middle of a work day, and um, work has been a little wild, to be honest. Uh, So it, you know, it is nice to, you know, my podcast is kind of like a break away for me. You know, kind of, you know, to connect, to learn, also to kind of (laughs) decompress from my nine to five. So again, it's really nice to have you here, listeners, as I alluded to in the last episode that Doug, you know, could possibly be coming back and we would be talking about From Zero to I Love You. So I want to jump right into it. From Zero to I Love You is a romance comedy, in my opinion. I don't know. I I didn't see comedy on the end when I saw it on when I went online, but I I certainly was chuckling. (laughs) Good. You, You should. I think life in itself is funny i mean i come from a family with a very dark sense of humor i mean we crack jokes at funerals yeah sometimes you gotta laugh from keep from crying or sometimes you're laughing and crying at the same time mm-hmm. <laughs> from zero to i love you is a romance comedy written and directed by doug spearman in 2019 and before i go into the movie i just want to say i've watched it about three times i love wow. the movie and i'm already planning a watch party here at my wow. house I'm yeah. going to invite some friends over, and we're going to watch this movie and have a good time with some drinks. So what made you watch it? Oh, well, aside from me asking you to watch it for the conversation, but why did you watch it more than once? What did you well, get out of it? Well, I tend to do that with just movies in general and even, like, series that I watch. I'll watch something more than once because I just oh. think you kind of catch things that you didn't get the first time. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you, you know, and by the time you get to the third, you've really you you've had a chance to really digest each character individually or is or at least the main characters i think when you're watching a movie or a film or you know a series for the first time a lot of the focus is on the main character and um you're trying to keep up with them um emotionally and what they're going through mentally trying to get a feel for the character i wanted to watch it to really because Everyone is kind of going through it <laughs> in a different way in in this movie. I mean, you know, you, you have Jack and Pete. They have their relationship. Pete and Ron, who um, played by Richard Lawson, his father, they have their certain, they have an interesting dynamic in, in relationship. John's fine ass, played by Adam Kelsch. Uh, that. <laughs> okay, uh, it's just. So much going on. (laughs) 
So yeah, listen, you got to watch this a few times. It's just, it's a lot. Again, I love it because it is a lot to take in and a lot to think about. It does give you, especially as a, as a black queer man, I identify as a black queer man. It it Uh gives me a lot of things to think about. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny listening to the, going to screenings and watching the audience watch the movie, which is my favorite thing to do. Um, it's, it, I think it's very successful for me because it's written for kind of two audiences. I mean, like white people have white, especially white gay men have a very different understanding of the movie and experience of the, the movie other than rather than the black gay men that might be in the movie mm. in the theater, mm-hmm. you know, because, yeah. you know, there are times when I'm talking directly to them and not to anybody else. Absolutely. And I'm always grateful that they get it, that they hear the message that like that when they know that they're included in this story, because I ask questions and I don't have answers, but like we never even see that sometimes ever see the question. We never get the questions asked. That is, I, I agree 100%. I, I even think about Carla, you know, who plays the wife of Jack. She, you know, so it's like you even give the wives that are in the scenario, you give the wives a story you get because she, she, she plays a big part in this too. Yeah, well, I didn't want her to be just a trope. You know what I mean? I didn't want it just to be, she was this, I didn't want Carla to be a two-dimensional character. I wanted her to be a real woman. So I talked to a lot of women. I talked to a lot of people who were in these relationships. And I tried Mm. to distill the bits for me that would work in the story. But Carla, I mean, well, it's funny when I, this was a book. This was a novel that I wrote originally. And um, it was on the verge of getting published in the 90s. I wrote it in 94. And um, I didn't write the screenplay, the first version of the screenplay until 1998. But I knew Carla. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, um, I, hmm. like these are all people that I knew and that were in my life. Hmm. And Carla's based on a real person. But so is Jack's based on a bunch of people. Ron is actually based on not my, originally that character was Pete's brother. Cause he's based on my brother. Okay. Um, okay. But when, when, because originally I was going to play the role of Pete when I first started trying to produce this back in the nineties. And um, that's how long that had been around and eating at my head. Oh my God. I felt like I was just living to make this movie for 20 years. And I got, I got in my own head that I was too old to play Pete. I asked Daryl Stevens to, to play the role of Pete. And because Richard and I are closer in age than certainly Daryl and Richard, that I changed it from a older brother situation to a father situation. And so I sprinkled in a lot of like what my brother was like and what my dad was like mm-hmm. and used parts of Richard's own life. Um, wow. to create the character, to flesh out the character. And Carla was based on a woman that I have, she was based on a really good friend of mine and she was based on a woman that I'd worked with in DC who was constantly falling in love with men who were gay. Wow. 
So do you, as a director, as a writer and producer, do you often, when you're working with actors in this way that you just described, you give them the agency to bring their own life experience into the role? You have to. That's what an actor's job is. Mm. And an actor's number one job is to use whatever experience they've had to fill out the role. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I can give them everything. You have to, you know, human beings come fully equipped with experiences and feelings and thoughts and, and behaviors. And my job is to help them focus on what those behaviors and feelings and experiences are that will tell the best story combined with these other people. And it comes out in the execution and the performance and in the story that the actor is telling on, on screen. I mean, it really does. And all the actors did an amazing job. I, I really, yeah. it was, it was great. Yeah. I had a brilliant cast mm-hmm. and, and a brave one. And they stuck with this project because it took four years to shoot this. Wow. And their scenes where one side of the dialogue was shot like three years prior to another spot of the, like there are scenes that were shot in 2013 and the rest of the scene was shot in 2018. Do you know what I mean? So for them to manage (laughs) that is a kind of magic that I don't even know how it works, but God knows it did. From Zero to I Love You is a romance comedy written, directed by Doug Spearman in 2019. The movie is about a gay man whose fear of intimacy leads him to continually fall for married guys in a closeted married man meet, forcing both men, forcing both men to confront what they really want in their romantic lives. Mm-hmm. So leading from that, in an interview you did with Promo Homo TV, you mentioned that earlier in your life, a lot of your dating experience involved married men. From Zero to I Love You explored a very similar theme. Can you talk about talk about that, I guess, that seed that was planted, that you wanted to bring this story to film? And then also, what do you want your, what was the main thing that you really wanted to get across to your audience by telling this story? So, a couple things. One, I felt like if I wrote the story, maybe I could understand why I was doing it, why I was getting involved with guys who were in some kind of relationship, who had a prior relationship. And I was trying to figure out, I was, it was almost like I was trying to exercise a curse. I know that sounds weird, but um, I was trying to understand it. I thought if I could understand the jacks in my life, maybe I would understand why I was involved in that Hmm. because I was, you know, like once you find out you either break it off or you keep going. And if you keep going, why? And I discover a lot about myself when I write, because the characters talk to me, there was a, you know, there's a scene in the movie where Pete is going to have dinner with his dad and his dad's girlfriend. Yes. They both turn on him and say, you have a fear of commitment. At the bar, yes. At the bar. And the, you're afraid of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I did not know that until I was writing that. And I remember writing that scene, and I took my hands off the keys, and I thought, am I? So I'm always trying to figure that out. 
Do you know what I mean? And I thought I could try to tell this story in a modern way using, you know, black and gay people in a, in a, in a story that's happened over and over again. Like my, I told you, I think in our first conversation that my parents loved movies and I was constantly being shown old movies. I was constantly being sat down and you need to watch this movie. It's really great. And it's important. And here's mm-hmm. what our lives were like when this movie came out, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And so you know, my mother loved movies from the 40s and the 50s. And there are all these movies like An Affair to Remember and Backstreet, which was a Susan Hayworth movie that's not particularly great, but it is really good. And even uh, Todd Hayes did a movie. Oh, I referenced it originally. And I actually cut the line. Far From Heaven is the name of a movie that came out with Dennis Haysbert and Julianne Moore in the early 2000s. And it's all the same story. You know what I mean? It's just different perspectives on the same affair or husband not available kind of thing. And I wanted to put my own spin on it. And, you know, the the, the question that I wanted to, not the question, but the, the point is be happy. Because I think a lot of people do things because they think they're supposed to do. Like if you, if you listen to the, a lot of the sort of the opposite voices in the film, there are a lot of people like just why can't you just settle down and be happy? Why can't you just be content with the life that you've got that looks like our life? Hmm. You know, Pete's father wants him. Doesn't the the issue isn't the fact that Pete's gay? It's the fact that Pete's running around doing all this messy shit. You know, and his dad's like, why can't you just settle hmm. down and be happy? You got this boyfriend who's got a fucking trust fund. You know, he's gorgeous. He's everything you could want. Why can't you just be happy? Why do you got to fuck around? And, you know, Jack's best friend is like, you married the perfect woman. You've got two great kids. You live with a beautiful woman. You live in a house in the suburbs and you've got a great job. Why can't you just be happy? And the answer is there are a lot of things that drive us, I believe, or drive me that don't look like the things that drive other people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I have, I've, had, really? I've had friends who were like, well, why don't you buy a house? Or why can't you just work at a studio or network and i'm like you know i tried i tried corporate life i tr- i've had corner offices and i've had cubicles and i'm not happy in enclosed spaces nine to five just can't do it it's not me mm-hmm. you know so find the thing or the person that makes you happy and follow that follow your bliss don't just settle and I've been in relationships. In fact, it's funny. I was having a conversation with somebody about a relationship I had in my in my mid-20s that looked amazing on paper. I mean, he was handsome, smart, well-off. He was the first boyfriend my, ever, my parents ever met, and they instantly approved, even my father. And I was freaking miserable to the point of almost committing suicide. Mm. I was that miserable. And just because something looks good on paper doesn't mean it fits. So find the thing that does fit, no matter whose paper it looks good on. Right. And and was that the main message you wanted to portray to your audience? Yeah. That and the, you know, that and the fact that there are men out there like me who find themselves in a sort of very white gay space. A lot of times, and you have to, and and that we're questioning that. 
yeah. and at the same time going along with it. And we don't see that very often in film. You know what I mean? There's a lot of, you know, a lot of it's about the poor black gay guy or the poor black guy, period. You know what I mean? And I'm like, you know, there are people out there who have middle and upper middle class experiences and lives that are going through all kinds of drama on their own. So can we just talk about that for a minute? I do remember a point in the movie where you do see Pete kind of, he's wrestling with that. He, he goes, why well, don't I have any black friends? Right. And he doesn't answer the question. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I think a question is just out there and it doesn't have to have a neat bow on it, but it makes the audience ask those questions. And relate. Yeah. Hopefully. Or just see another side. Yeah, because I, I agree. You mentioned earlier that there's a lot of Jacks out there. There's a lot of Pete's out there. And I really agree with there's a lot of Carla's out there. Mm. Do you know one of the things I was I found out when I was doing the research for the business plan for this was that the number one Google search, according to the New York Times, that when women write the thing, uh, type into Google, I think my husband is, the number one answer is the number one word at the end of that sentence question is gay Mm. and then on drugs and then an alcoholic but i mean come on wow well i want to say that the cinematography in the film is just beautiful you shot it here in philly or some did you shoot most of it here in philly and some in canada no none of it was shot in canada it was shot in philadelphia uh new york los angeles all, almost all the interiors were shot in L.A., except for New York. Pete's New York apartment was actually in New York. And what's funny is that Jack's therapist office is actually in the same apartment. It's actually the den in the apartment in New York where we shot my friend Charlie's apartment um, uh, in Palm Springs. In fact, they're the house that they stay in in Palm Springs is actually Keeley's mother's house in Palm Springs in real life. So we just used a lot of places that like I had access to and people, people were kind enough. So I, but you know, but it took me a long time to find interiors that had the same proportions as East coast exteriors, but West coast interiors, but the, but they had to have the right kind of door and the right kind of window and the right kind of fireplace. It's just I'm just loving it. It's um playing again on mute as we're talking. It's just I just love the the colors are vivid. The scenes are very intimate and warm. You're outside, especially there. There's scenes where they're walking outside. I'm actually gonna I want to talk about a few of my favorite scenes here in a, in a second. So I don't want to give too much away in that. But I just I love the uh, the lighting. How you were able to tell a story through not just what you wrote, but which ultimately translates into what we're hearing, but what we're seeing. Well, I I have to give all the credit to the two cinematographers that I worked with. There's a guy out of New York, his name is Peter Stusloff, and Peter is just wonderful with light. And Peter, I mean, it would make me nervous because Peter would just he would go to town and I'm like, why are we, what's taking so long? What's, you know, cause you know, money, time is money on a film set. Right. And I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And my uh, production manager's like, slow down, let him do his work. 
And Peter went so far as to change all the light bulbs on everybody's front porch on a street in Philadelphia. And when you look at the scene, you really, it, it's magical because he just went and changed yes. everybody's porch light and then rewrapped all the street lights. Do you know what I mean? And Peter, Peter and I and Kevin Barry, who shot the last half of the movie, and, you know, Peter, Kevin brought his own magic to it, but he also had the template of what Peter and I had already shot to go with. And when I work with somebody, I give them, you know, like I try to come up with a common vocabulary. Like we watch a lot of movies. I send them paintings and ideas for what I like the scene to look like. And then they interpret that. And they were just really great about that. But, you know, I, I can like, but I don't in the movie, the, the thing is you hire people who are really great at what they do and then you get the hell out of their way. And Peter and Kevin just did a remarkable job. Wonderful job. Well, shout out to Peter and Kevin. It sounds like when I'm ready for my close-up, I need to call Peter and Kevin. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Barry and Peter Stuslov, the two cinematographers that just did fantastic work. Amazing. I saw some familiar faces in the films. Shout out to Daryl Stevens, who's an amazing actor. Mm. And he plays Pete. That's who we've been talking about. Shout out to Daryl Stevens. Um, but you've worked with him a lot in the past. What was it like to work with him again on the set of this movie? Well, you know, this is very different. I mean, Daryl's actually in my first movie, too. He has a really big role in hot guys with guns, a very important role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've always loved and respected Daryl as a person and as a creative person. And, you know, I wanted to, I, I know Daryl has a lot of depth, a lot of easily accessible depth, emotional depth. And I knew he could really do justice to this role. The, and directing him is very different than working in a scene with him as an actor. I mean, I, I loved mm. in Noah's Ark anytime I got to work one-on-one -on -one with Daryl. It was just, it was heaven. And, but, and then having to direct him because I've known how he works and I know him as a person, we had to have a lot of talks because I literally had to try to, you know, he's, he was at first, he was just trying to play me because Pete's based on me. Right. Um, but after a while, he had to find his own way in. I mean, we had a lot of conversations because, you know, his motivations in the world and his choices are very different from Pete's. Just the same way that my choices and my actions and my, my personality is very different from the character I played on Noah's Ark, Chance. But you had to, but even if you're given something that's so foreign to you, you had to figure out a way in and you had to use you to get in. Yeah. So, I, you know, I gave Daryl all the information and I answered any question he had. The only physical thing I tried to do was just change Daryl's center of gravity. Like Daryl, Daryl's center of gravity is up around his shoulders and his upper back. And mine is all in my hips. You know, like I walk hip first. And, yeah. um, and so we were just trying to change. And there's a, the place where you see it the most is when Daryl's walking up to his own front door. And it's just Daryl walking towards the camera, and he's literally walking like me. I have to go back and watch that scene now that you mentioned that. <laughs> he's doing my walk. <laughs> and I was like, we got it. Like, and, you know, if you don't do it again, I'm happy right now. So, 
He's great. I mean, I love Daryl, but so I had to like again with all the actors. You just you give them all the information. You you fill up their toy chest as much as possible, and then get out the way. For me, with Daryl, it's in his eyes. I mean, that it, it's really intense, especially when the camera locks in on on those eyes. Mm-hmm. Daryl can be really intense, um, and in yeah. chair and in in portray and just. You can see the emotion. I'm right there in the eyes, and I love it. Shout out to Daryl. There was a there was a moment when we were shooting. I would ruin takes, by the way, sitting behind the the camera and the monitor because I was so into it. I'd be made, ooh, ah, yes. Do you know what I mean? I was. It was like I was watching television or watching a movie, and they're like, "Doug, we can hear you." <laughs> and, you know, I had to shut up, and and their performances would really changed the editing of, really changed the editing of the movie and I had a, a fantastic editor his name is Christo Zaras and Christo and I have worked together for a long long time but I give the scenes to Christo and he would find these moments with the actors and there's a big moment with the, what there's a big quartet scene uh in the latter part of the movie where like shit kind of hits the fan like all the characters who are never supposed to come together come together mm-hmm. And I choreographed it so that Daryl's back was to Scott at one point. And there was a, there was a moment where Daryl hears Scott's voice and under, knows who it is. And Daryl's performance in that scene predicated, like I had to keep it as a foreshot as opposed to cutting to Daryl's reaction because it was just so marvelous played, not, focused but in the in the context of what was going on around him in the scene it's just brilliant yeah brilliant the lawsons were also in the building uh richard lawson who plays uh pete's father ron yeah ron who curses like a sailor reminds reminded me of my own dad yeah that's that that's richard when he gets mad (laughs) i've known (laughs) richard for almost for almost 30 years He's been, he was my acting teacher for 20 and, um, you know, and a mentor and a friend. And, you know, I couldn't have, the role was written for Richard and he was always attached to it. Um, and so I just, I just wrote it around Richard and I just let it go. And uh, you're talking about the fact that Tina Lawson's in it. And you Tina know, came out looking so good. I was like, yes. <laughs> and what's funny is that Richard didn't know Tina was going to do that. Like I actually called Tina the day before and I said, would you surprise Richard in the scene? So are you saying that that was a raw reaction? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, was, that is that amazing. Was, I Richard, love that. Tina walked up behind Richard and he's such a professional. And he's like, hey, how you doing? You know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> he kind of went with it. Yes, and I'm sure as a director, you probably do this a lot. Like, you have to surprise the actor sometime because you want to get that raw reaction out of them. Yeah, well, you want to, you want them to have as authentic and real... You want to give them something to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to give them things to do that are unexpected. Yeah, yeah. I also recognize Shane Johnson, who plays Clay. I recognized him from uh, Power. Yeah, that's actually Keely's real life husband. Really? Yeah, Keely and Shane are married to each other, and uh, we were all in class. Keely, Shane, and I all studied with Richard. We're all in class together. Like three quarters of the people in that movie are uh, people from my acting class. Wow. 
and our teacher. Adam Kelsch, who plays John. Clash. Clash. Adam Clash, who plays John, is just the epitome of sex. I just have to say that. That man is yeah, fine. He does, kind of, he does give off a heavy pheromone. I mean, just dripping from the screen. I I had to re- I had to rewind it. Maybe that's why I watched it two or three times. No, I'm kidding. Wow. Um, <laughs> no, that man, Adam. You well, you know, John. Of all, you know, John was actually much more of a. He's not really the bad guy in the movie, but he he kind of gets with hit with a lot of things but he's just a guy trying to live his life do you know what i mean and he has certain prejudices and that speech the you know the breakup speech was rewritten a few times and um it was a bit more pointed in one but i you know i just tried to to write people who were neither good nor bad they're just they just are and but the thing about john is that he had to be John is a character he had, he's based on a guy named Bruce that I knew in Boston and an ex-boyfriend and two ex-boyfriends of mine who are both, by the way, named John. And um, how can I put this? He had to be the, he had to be the prize. Do you know what I mean? He had to be that sort of quintessential perfect white gay boy. Mm-hmm. Gay man. He's not a boy. John's not a man. Uh, not a boy. He's a man. Mm-hmm. And I, he had to be beautiful and he had to be sexy and he had to be rich. He had to be like, so that the real tragedy is why Pete can't stay with him. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And it does seem, John, in the beginning, as a watcher of the movie, you do feel like John's kind of, he does give off kind of like the bad guy vibes a little bit but he's just someone who's in love with Pete Mm -hmm. and finds himself in a interesting situation just like just like Pete has that scene where he told him to pack his bags where he was hugging him and told him yeah that's one of the best things I've ever I've ever blocked in my life because I wanted it to to me a, a scene always has to go left you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing worse than drawing you in only to like really punch you in the gut. It's almost like you yeah. stabbed him. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I wanted to be, do you ever, you, have you seen, you know, like the, the, the last part of, what is it? Um, were you a, a Game of Thrones fan? Yes. Okay. Did you watch the last season? Yes. Okay, do you remember when Jon Snow s- stabs Daenerys when he kills the the Dragon Queen? He's like, "I love you, but you gotta fucking die." At the very end, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. and the dragon. Her dragon carries her off. Right, right exactly. Yeah. That's what that scene between Jon and Pete is, mm. which I did years before that. But it's you know it's kind of a classic: get close and shoot, you know, kill your lover. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, because Jon was hurt. Oh yeah, and he wanted he wanted Pete to feel that, and I mean that really came across in that scene. Adam did an exceptional job in that scene, and and I also have to give credit to Kevin for the way it was shot, and I loved the fact that the color was like we sh- we like there was a big choice in the colors of the sets, 
Like, if you notice that John's world is gray, black, and white, there's no color in it. Like, if you even, mm. like, any color is, like, the first time you see Pete in John's environment, he's got on a bright peach-colored sweater, right? And then the next time, he's got this sort of green and white striped shirt. But the next, the last time, he's, all the color has been drained out of his clothes. It's all gray and white. And if you look at where he, the wall he's standing around, like if you look at the image of like the, the art behind Pete and when he's talking to Denzel, the black guy he's just slept with, like there's this crazy confusion of white strings behind Pete against a gray wall and all the clothes hanging in that rack are gray. So mm-hmm. all the color has been sucked out of his life. But if you look at like Pete's, when Pete was living by himself, the colors are really rich and vibrant and deep. And there's like yellow flowers and the, the wallpaper in his bedroom is green and gold and the, the colors are warm. Mm-hmm. And like in, in their pops of colors in, in Jack's world, but it's mostly black. It's mostly gray, black and white. And it's only when they are together. Like I even did it with their ties. Um, with, with Jack's ties, like whenever Jack is around his, in his normal life, he's either got stripes or checks, but when his tie, when he's around Pete or he's going to see Pete, his ties are flowered. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the location where that was, uh, <clears throat> John and Peter's apartment, there was that great staircase, right? And I had a way of, in my mind of shooting it. But Kevin came up with the idea of Pete walking down the stairs and then revealing John through the staircase and sort of creeping up on Pete, hiding behind the staircase until he's ready to like full on give it to him. Do you know what I mean? So all of those things were very, very deliberate. Yeah. So very similar in a way that sound is used um, in, in the picture, in the movie Color was used to help set a mood oh yeah and and and, and also um portray an emotion and also you know portray where the where the character is at that point of their life yeah and we tried to do you know like i got lucky in the fact that like if i had shot something one way i got to like parallel it like there's a scene you know the scene in the movie where carla and jack are having dinner in the restaurant and um, it's the it's that moment where Jack almost forgets that it's date night and in, ends up having to stand up, Pete. Oh right, because she told him, him you better right. you better bring your ass or yeah you you know like you unless you want to sleep with my husband for the rest of your life he's talking to her like you know or remind him that it's date night yeah and then he shows up but if you look at the way that those two scenes are shot back mm-hmm. to back mm-hmm. like Carla is sitting at one end of the table. And Jack is at the opposite. Mm-hmm. But when you cut, if you were to slice those scenes together, Carla would be sitting opposite Pete. And like off Carla's left hand is a fireplace that's with a fire burning. And off of Pete's right hand on the opposite side is a fireplace that's burning. And wow. there's a scene where Carla reaches out and Jack takes her hand and there's an empty place there. And it c- cuts to the empty place Jack would be sitting at on Pete's table. It just worked out really, oh, really well. Beautiful, beautiful. Wow. 
Or there's a scene, my favorite thing is that we shot this one scene and I realized when we went to shoot Jack leaving Pete's bedroom, we had already shot Jack entering his own bedroom from the opposite. So it looks like he goes out one door and comes right back in, but he's in another room entirely. You know where Carla wakes up and goes, what's going on? Yes. Yeah. Yes, if, you, if, you, if you look at the scene where he walks out of Pete's bedroom, because Pete's asleep, and then he closes the door and then he instantly opens the same door, a, another door, but in the exact same location on the opposite, on, 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 a, on a mirrored side of the screen, he walks in his own bedroom. Wow. So we put a lot of thought into this so that it would, to make it feel like a waltz. Like jazz and classical music play a lot in this film because mm -hmm. I was trying to create those rhythms in the scenes. Another scene that I loved was Pete was reading a book to Jack in front of a fireplace. Oh yeah, yeah, Ooh. reading notes, notes, uh, notes from a marriage, uh, which is my favorite book of poetry, and. Um, Hmm. I actually talked to the poet about that, Gavin, and um, got his permission to do that because I've always loved that poetry. It was a beautiful poem, a beautiful scene. I mean, the flicker of the flame, the warmth. I mean, it was like you could feel the warmth of the fire, honestly. Yeah, real fire. Good, thank you. I, I like to use real things like that. It just, it first of all, it, it just adds production value and texture and depth and you know they're just two guys drinking wine and listening and you know he's just reading his boyfriend poetry who wouldn't want that yeah it was very in exactly this is very intimate it was like oh goals after watching that scene <laughs> you'll have to rip me rip me something up in the poconos with a fireplace and get me something something going on or, here or just move to an old a place in old city <laughs> true True. What's another one of your favorite scenes? I'm really curious. Like, what's the, um, the it was a pool scene with Jack and Clay, and mm. Jack thought he was about to have like to me it seemed like Jack thought he was about to have like this bro moment and mm -hmm. have a connection with these two guys to be finally like wow it's not it's not just me that is attracted to other men but they completely played him. Or he played himself in that scene. He played himself. He played himself in that scene. And um, I thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah, I, that was one of the last scenes I wrote. Because I didn't have Rich as a character until the very end. While we were, when we, just before we went to shoot that, I rewrote the whole scene. Because I, I have a, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do was show some depth to Carla. And Carla's brother, I, mean, I, I don't know if you like, there's a scene when in Palm Springs where Jack is texting Pete and, and uh, Shane's character walks up and goes, who are you texting, Jackie? And, um, and what you hear is a, what behind them, you can hear Carla and her mother arguing. Mm -hmm. And what they're arguing about is Carla's dad has left for a younger woman. And the the purpose of like if you listen, it's like she's like that bimbo, and like I don't want to talk about it. That's all I have left. That's why I drink. You know what? Like there's this argument happening off stage, but you can hear it. And um, and Clay is only in Palm Springs because he got busted cheating on his wife, just like his dad. 
And I'm a big believer that whether we want to or we don't, we sometimes repeat our parent relationships. Like we marry yeah. somebody like a parent. So I wanted to show that Carla was just unconsciously, she had married her father and her brother. She'd married a cheater. Mm. So that was that, that's why that whole thing was about. And I also wanted to throw Jack off. And Scott does a brilliant job. If you notice that first scene in, in Palm Springs where they walk in and you like, where he gets introduced to Rich and Clay is explaining about like, like I made, I, I said, Shane touch. His name is, uh, um, oh my God. Touch Rich as many times and as, po- as you possibly can. Touch his body. And if you notice, Pete, uh, Jack only says hi in the, the whole scene. That's all he says is hi. But the way Scott said it was like he's alive and he's at attention. And mm. I just love that Scott did so much with just hi <laughs> in this very long scene. Yeah. But the bromance when he gets made is just. You know, you see what you want to see. You hear what you want to hear. When he when he like comes in and he's like, um, are you talking about the scene where he's in his towel? Yeah. You you're right. He he seems a little stuck, and then you know that the booty's a little fat, so Jack's watching it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was a note to Scott. I said, when he goes to pick up the bags, we'll check out his ass. I, I would have you know what I mean? it looked really like, good. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Hunger family, let's take a short break from the conversation and get into a snippet of Philly Pride, a song by local Philly artist Don Plus. You can find this track on his latest EP, Rhythm in Words. His album is actually trending right now on iTunes R&B charts. Go off, Don. You can also find him on YouTube and SoundCloud, but I'll be sure to add his info to the episode notes. Show him some love, y'all. Rap to your stories. Let me rap your story. Your story. Yeah. Check it out one time. Yeah. Rap to your story. Yeah. Rap to your stories. Yeah. Let me rap your story. Your story. Get slipping all in doubt. I just realized, yo, that you about to be out with your homies on the low. Glad you told me, baby, now I gotta really scope Up the situation, let you know how this can go Get going, have some fun, you're grassing ass Let them niggas know that you the number one But they can't pass And you know that you got something back down Got more class, yes. And you know that you the one to ruin that Yeah, so you wanna make these moves with me But you just gotta know your feet When it comes to certain things, yeah, how you doing, you Gotta make sure I keep my respect and my health and teeth. You just gotta know that I ain't playing games when it comes to here now. I'm really down. Been looking out for you for sure. Just look around. I ain't really looking at hoes. It's really on you, baby. I gotta let you know. Gotta let you know.
after watching this movie, you know, I had a few things, a few feelings, but one, one of them was really just wondering how many men out there find themselves in this situation. And I feel like the number is much larger than what we want to believe or think. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. You know, when I first moved to New Orleans, the very first two guys that asked me out were married, are married still. Mm -hmm. One to a man and one to a woman. And I was just like, you know, the, I had to have a conversation with the, the guy that's married to a man. I said, you know, I'm not going to jump into your husband's bed. I, I don't want to do that. I've done that. I'm not doing that. And then the guy that, you know, like I, this, this guy just gave me, like, he was just hard pressing me at the gym. And I finally said I'd have dinner with him. And I said, what's the deal with your wedding ring? And he said, I can't get it off. And, and I said, well, are you still married? And he said, yeah, I am. He's, he's on a break with his wife, but they're still married. Right. Right. You know, I think it's, I just think the culture that a lot of people grow up in still doesn't support the idea of like, you go do you, you know what I mean? Why do you think this happens so much? Religion, expectations, the desire to be air quotes, normal, mm. to fit in. Yeah. I like how you put religion as first. <laughs> Just oh, I see it a lot. Catholicism and Southern mm. Southern Christianity. I mean, I live in the deep South now and I talk to these guys and I, I meet a lot of guys who came out. Like I came out when I was 17. And, um, <clears throat> and it was a lot harder in 1979, 1980 to come out than it is now. But I meet guys who come out in their 20s and 30s. And I'm like, what the hell were you waiting for? You mm -hmm. know? That's a lot of, I mean, Jesus Christ, I had a whole freaking lifetime before you even came out, but I wasn't told I was ever going to hell. You know what I mean? Like my parents, I think we talked about this last time. My parents never get, I was never told what I was, who I was, was evil or needed to change. How a child should be raised. Yeah. When you're raised in an environment where you're, constantly being told you're going to hell and it's being reinforced on a consistent basis. I mean, that's, it's really damaging and traumatic. Yeah, it is. And I see it. And you know, you, one of the questions that you'd written me about, and it was about HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And I think, and I, I know for a fact, I mean, I've been to conferences where we've talked about this. When you don't value yourself, when you're, when you're taught over and over again, that what you are is wrong and abomination evil, twisted, sick, whatever, um, you don't treat yourself well. If you start to believe it, you treat yourself like that. And then you put yourself in physical situations with drugs, alcohol, debt, sex, all kinds of things, which you destroy yourself. And I know, you know, for instance, I know the reason why, um, I mean, I've talked to the Black AIDS Institute had a, a really great program about this. Dr. David Malbranch, who is in Atlanta, talks about this. A lot of people, Phil Wilson from the Black AIDS Institute, when he was executive director, we would have these talks and conferences about the fact that like the reason why the numbers have never gone down for infection rates for Black 
gay, same gender loving, whatever you want to call it, men who have sex with men, it's because we live in a society that tells us we're just barely above animals. Mm-hmm. It, and it's not just the white people, it's our own family sometimes. I was really lucky that I was never given that kind of messaging. But I know a lot of guys who were. And I think if you don't value yourself, I mean, I have my own demons and my own struggles. Trust me, it wasn't perfect. I grew up with alcoholics. Um, and had my own struggles with drugs and alcohol until I got sober. Um, but if you don't value yourself, you put yourself in situations where like, I don't care. I don't care. Do whatever you want. That's a really interesting perspective. And I agree with it a hundred percent. I'm reflecting on a, a podcast that I listened to a long time ago and they were talking about trigger warning suicide and the experts on the panel were saying that, you know, these rates are always flawed because we think of suicide as, you know, people inflicting, you know, direct injury and harm to themselves. And they said, absolutely, that does exist. But they said suicide is also um, sometimes drawn out in a way that mm-hmm. when people, especially like you were saying, in situations where they, they, don't, they don't feel valued or they don't value themselves, oftentimes people... Uh, put themselves in really dangerous and risky situations. Yeah, absolutely. Often, you know, times or sometimes can be um, fatal. Yeah, well, that's the whole point. It's self-destruction. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If the world doesn't value it. Like, I, I, it's funny. I just had this thing with a friend of mine who just tanked a situation. And it's because he got mad and, you know, his way of dealing with, like, I'm going to hurt myself and then you'll be sorry. And that, that, you know, it's a shitty way of trying to fix things. And, you know, I know I'm very aware of the privileges that I've been given in my life and the responsibilities that come with that. And I'm even more aware of it living here now in a very black city with a very strong presence you know what i mean like i was i was i I did well in schools and i had i had teachers that saw things in me and gave me extra stuff to learn and parents who sent me to concerts and museums and on trips Mm -hmm. and signed permission slips and put me on trains by myself you know what i mean and not everybody's had that experience Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and I realized that, oh, yeah, I got to give some of this back. I've got to encourage people to get out. Yeah. Help somebody. Yeah. I want to circle back to uh, two things you mentioned. First, you mentioned that you're down south now. You're in New Orleans, correct? I am. Mm -hmm. You know, my job, I've been there once. My job sent me to New Orleans. Right before the pandemic hit, it was really nice. It was a work conference. I was there for about four or five days. All expenses covered. Really nice. I enjoyed it. I went to pretty much meetings all day. But then at night, I got to get out and explore the city, mostly on my own. Uh, because the my coworker that I went with, um, my colleague, she was there with her husband. So... We may have had a few drinks together here and there, but they mostly did their, they hung out, they did their thing. And I was, I was by myself. So I was walking around New Orleans and exploring the city by myself at night. <laughs> did you get out of the French Quarter? 
I can't, I don't know. I don't think that I, I wherever I could go within walking distance. Um, Where were you staying? Who? you remember? No, it, well, the, it was right on, it's a main, I could look, I could see Bourbon. Canal, you were staying on Canal Street. Yes, I was staying on Canal, and I remember it was across the street from a restaurant, because I went there twice. They served fried green tomatoes with shrimp on, they did like a shrimp and then like a sauce on top. Oh my God, I went there like three times. <laughs> it was right across the street from the hotel. Um... I can't, I can't remember, but yes, it was on Canal Street and it was very close to, I could look out my window and see bourbon. I can see everything going on. Did you go to the Black Gay Bar? I didn't know. So I was, I was, you know, there by myself. I, you know, tried to find out what I could by asking questions. Um, But I really, I, I tell you, I saw a good drag show. I had some really good drinks. But I really didn't did I, I feel like I really didn't get a chance to like see I didn't I, I hardly I feel like I didn't see really any black gays. I'm like, where's everybody? It seems like everyone just kind of was together on Bourbon. Now Bourbon Street, and it's not even all of Bourbon Street. What people come to New Orleans to party on is basically four blocks. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not the whole French Quarter. It's just four blocks on Bourbon Street. That's not the entire French Quarter, which I think is like a mile square. And if all you got to see was just Bourbon Street, like if you'd walked up five blocks to uh, Rampart Street, you would have found a bar called The Page, and it, which is owned by Anthony Mackey's brother, Willie Mackey, and it's a black gay bar. Yeah, I'm not sure if I... Now, I, I did do a lot of walking. Anywhere my feet took me, I walked in different directions. I went down to the river, which was... An amazing, I mean, that river is, um, that yeah, river, the Mississippi's no joke. That, that river's no joke. Um, <laughs> wherever, where my feet could, t- and, and I have some pictures, I'll have to share some of them with you. And if I'm ever there again, I, I hope you don't mind. I may, oh, I love, playing tour guide. <laughs> I love playing tour guide here because people, you know, like a lot of people's experience of New Orleans is literally four blocks. Mm-hmm. And they think everything about New Orleans is those that their Bourbon Street experience, which isn't even the entirety of the street. Do you know what I mean? It's, so yeah. New Orleans is way more than Bourbon Street. Absolutely. A whole bunch of folks getting drunk and acting a fool. And I really wanted to experience and, and that's and you get some of that too. And you know, I went, I, I rode the bull, I found a I found a I have, I can show you the pictures. I wrote the bull. You know, I got out a little bit and I'll say that, you know, I, I did a tour too. I did this tour where they walked us through all these haunted homes and hotels and told us us these really interesting stories. And to me, it, it felt really real. So I wanted to ask you as someone who resides in New Orleans, do you second the notion that New Orleans is a haunted city? Absolutely. Have you, okay, so talk to us about that. Like, have you experienced anything? Have you seen anything? Like, only once, only in in one place. I'm constantly looking in windows. I'm like, I drive down the street and I'm like, please let some like lady in like (laughs) an empire gown with curled hair on top of her head or a hoop skirt be looking out the window at me. Do you know what I mean? Please let me see some dead white person staring at me or 
Keep on asking, Doug. Uh, they know, will come to you. I think I believe it. Um, you know, I constantly, but I have a friend who lives on uh, at the other end of Bourbon Street, right? His name's Peter, and Peter lives in a house. The there are two houses on the property, and the the original house was built around 1790, and the new house, the front house on the property, was built probably in the 1820s or 30s. And I was at a party the first time I was at Pete's house, Peter's house, and I was in the back house. And you walk in and it's decorated. Peter's decorated the house just like, you know, if there weren't electric lamps and somebody had put in a little gallery kitchen, you would still think you were in the 19th century. Oh, wow. House, right? Wow. And um, so my friend, whose name is Doug, and I were sitting in the back house in the, the saloon. And we were just sitting there. And it was just the two of us. And I said, Doug, we have to go outside. And he said, why? I said, it's too crowded in here. Like I could feel this feminine energy. And when I think about Ooh. her, I can, I can feel her. And she was really close to me. And, um, wow. and I was like, we got to go stand outside because I, I, I feel, it, it, and we were in a, we weren't, it, it wasn't empty of furniture. And it, but it wasn't like thickly packed with furniture, but we were the only two human beings in the house and that, you know, on the property. And I said, we have to go outside. We have to get in the courtyard because it's too crowded in here right now. You felt that presence. Yeah, I felt that. I felt like it was just pressing on me. I was going to say it sounded like it was overwhelming for you. It, it was to the, yeah, almost overwhelming, but not in a panicky way. Mm -hmm. Not in a panicky way. I just felt like there were these skirts up against me. And um, and so six months, was it six months? No, it was almost a year later. I was having breakfast with Peter in the front house. And I was telling him, I said, oh, funny enough, my only supernatural experience here was in your house, in the back house. He's like, where? And I'm like, we went back there. And And so he said, well, let's just sit in the room and see if anything comes to you. And we were sitting there and I kind of felt it again, but I kept hearing the, I kept hearing Louise, Louise, Ooh. Louise in my head. Mm. And, um, and I, he said, so you get anything? And I said, well, the only thing I could, I'm picking up right now is I keep hearing the name Louise in my head. And he said, that's really weird because I bought the house from this woman who had lived here with her sister for a long time, for years and years. And her sister died here. And that's why she sold the house. And her sister's name was Louise. Mm -hmm. And I wonder why she sold the house. She said, I had to get up out of here. Louise is not resting. I don't know whether that was it or not. I mean, like I will, like every once in a while in my apartment, and this just started in January, February, like my television will turn on. Hmm. And the remote, like I had to take a picture of it once. The remote, I was sitting in a chair. I was sitting in a leather chair in the corner reading. And the, the TV was is right next to my right arm. And it came on. And I looked at the remote is just sitting there on the table in front of me. Wow. My computer will start sometimes in the middle of the night. It started last night in the middle of the night. And why would you say, because from what I gathered in the short time that I was there, the history of New Orleans is that a lot of people lost their lives, particularly Black people. Do you feel like the city is really haunted by the spirits of Black folk? 
I think it's haunted by the spirits of everybody. I think, you know, like, okay, so New Orleans has been a city for 302 years. But for 80 years before that, it was basically just a colony, you know, where people died and lived and fucked and made babies and died and ate and gambled and partied. And and before that, the Indians were here. There were three particular tribes living around here. So human beings have been here for, you know, let's say five, six hundred years. Right. That's a lot of energy to leave behind. Mm, true. But you definitely get the sense of, or and, and I don't know whether it's my imagination, but I'm very aware of the lives of Black people who lived before me. Because, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier about this. Most of the houses here that you see that you fall in love with were built before 1865 or 1868, right? They're all built in the 1840s, 50s, 40s, and 30s or the 1780s, right? Mm -hmm. Every building before 1865 was built by a slave or slaves. Yeah. You're very aware that the people, that the streets were dug out by slaves. Do you know what I mean? You're very, I'm very aware of that. I'm very cognizant of it. There's slave quarters everywhere. Like almost every house over a certain age has a, you know, they call them dependencies now, but they're slave quarters. Mm. Like the top was a slave quarter. The bottom was the kitchen and the laundry. They're everywhere. They're studio apartments now, mm. but you cannot. And it's funny because a friend of mine was spending the night. He was in an Airbnb here in what was a converted slave quarter. And he said all night long, he was bothered by this black woman. He kept dreaming about this black woman who was constantly trying to get out of the room and run away. But he didn't know he was sleeping in a former slave quarter. He's like, I kept having this dream about this black woman who was constantly trying to get out of this room. And she, all she wanted to do was run away, run away, run away. And, um, I'm like, well, her energy is probably still there. Like, we leave energy behind. And I think the evidence of that is that we sense it and that we feel it. Um, yeah. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. My second question I, I wanted to circle back to you was about, uh, you brought up, we talked a little bit about HIV. I did an interview recently with David Michael. It's episode 403. He's a HIV awareness advocate out in the Bay Area. And one of the things we talked about in our interview was ways that we can reduce stigmas associated with HIV and AIDS. And for me, it was, well, one way is you uplift the voices of the people who are living it, who have experienced it, share what they know, share what we need to know. Um, As a community, we need to see that this impacts all of us, not just certain people. Um, and that we all can be a part of the solution. Doug, just from watching some of the videos and interviews that you've done, I know that you've also lived through the experience. I know you've lived through the experience of losing friends and loved ones to AIDS. Having lived through that experience, what would you say is something that we can do to help break the, ex- the break the stigma associated with HIV and AIDS? And what do you mean, we? Like, who are we talking to? A community. Are we talking about the black community, the black gay community, the gay community? Like, because the messaging has to be different. That's true. 
for everybody. So when, because, you know, we can't lump everybody, like all black gays are not alike. Right. All gays aren't alike. Do you know what I mean? The black community is fractured even in and of itself. So the point I have to make is that somebody has to stand up. I think the best way is to, to stand in your own light as somebody who is either positive and or negative and talk about it. Talk about your fear. Talk about your hopes. Talk about your dreams. And the fact that, you know, modern science has moved us to a point where as my doctor, in a very sad way, you know, like I'm negative. And my doctor was telling me, like, even if you did get it, it's a managed care disease like diabetes. And I said, you know, people still die of diabetes if they don't take care of it. So if you've got it, take care of yourself. If you don't have it, take care of yourself. If you know somebody with it, take care of them. Ask the questions that are hard to have. Have real good conversations about it. Yeah. Support each other. And, you know, and I'll say this for people who, who um, have a lot of friends who are positive. And the thing that I know is that, like, at, that I've had to t- talk about with them, it's like, I know their numbers, I ask them about their health, their, their, you know, what's going on with them. But very few times have I had a positive person say, how are you? you taking care of yourself? Going to the doctors? Eating right? You know, we have to support each other in our health, our physical and our mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no, I mean, it is a managed care disease. If you manage it, make sure that we're managing this thing. I mean, there are, there, there's all kinds of science that allows us to live, but, you know, on top of the pills and the protocols, we have to, it has to be about love and care and nurturing and support. Absolutely. And talking about how we got here and what do we need to do to make sure that nobody else gets infected. That's the whole point. Do you know what I mean? If we can, if, how do we stop this from happening what's the psychology and the emotional intelligence needed to make this all die out within a generation why can't we have people live honestly men why we should just erase the dl you know you are aware that next to strokes hiv and aids is the number one killer of black women in the united states did you know that no Mm-mm. Yeah, it is. Because men who feel like they can't be themselves go out and do this risky behavior and then bring it home to women who aren't expecting it. Yeah. Because they can't live in their truth. Live in your truth. Help each other be true. Be honest. Be un- Live without fear. Thank you for sharing that, Doug. You're welcome. What I appreciate about this conversation is the, even though we represent different generations, um, there's still so much knowledge and history and experience to be exchanged and shared. So I really appreciate you for coming on to the Hunger Podcast and sharing with me and the listeners. Um, Both of these conversations have been just amazing. And I'm serious about New Orleans. (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to show you around. And, you know, the other thing, if, if, you know, if we're coming to the end and it feels like we are, like, I just, 
yeah, you got to live in the now. You have to live in the present. You have to, and then you have to dream about what you want your life to be. And in this day and age, that's really huge. I mean, we have stronger, more powerful voices than we've ever had in the history of the United States as black men, as gay men, as gay people. I have a hard time with the word queer. I understand why your generation uses it, but queer means unusual. And I'm as, you know, I'm as normally American as apple pie, you know, but I like gay. It's what I grew up with. I'm happy being black and being gay, Mm -hmm. you know, um, where was I going with this? It's just the fact that you get to, but you have to understand where we come from. You know, I, I was with a young black friend of mine who didn't know what Harvey, didn't know who Harvey Milk was. Mm -hmm. And I said, your existence wouldn't, you wouldn't know who you were without Harvey Milk. You wouldn't be who you are if Harvey Milk hadn't existed. Just like we wouldn't be the black America. We wouldn't have the black America we have without Martin Luther King and all the civil, the people that work for civil rights. We have a history of black and gay activism and, and there are gay people, men, white and black men and women, trans and cisgender who've created us and who've opened the door, who've said things that we never, that we say now because it comes from someplace Mm -hmm. where you and I have the expression of like, were we, were we talking about uh, what's the T? And where that comes from? Were you are you asking me if we were talking yeah. about it? I don't think so. Okay, you know where the expression comes from? No, I, I don't know the origins of that. Means to read, you know, like and like. Have you ever heard "read your tea"? Like, like we're going to read him. Yeah, read. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, reading that—that's part of like reading tea leaves. It means reading your. It it, it comes from the the fortune telling aspect of when like when people used to go and drink tea and they drink loose tea and tea leaves would gather at the bottom of the cup you've seen people read tea leaves gypsies fortune tellers things like that Mm -hmm. we have an expression reading somebody's tea it means reading your tea leaves you know what i mean like we say shit we don't even know where it comes from Mm -hmm. i think it's indicative of, of it's imperative of us to know where we come from and what we say and what it means I think it's important to to continue to continue to learn and grow and, and share absolutely because like, yeah, there, there is so much knowledge out there. And I was talking to some, a group of friends last week, and we were we were wondering, we we're like, you know, we feel like we we lost so much, so much history, so much wasn't passed down because we lost so many people in the community, um, particularly in the in the black community um, to to HIV and AIDS. Um, and, and we talk about so much that's out there that we know it's there. It's like, how do you, how do you get it? You just have to be really intentional sometimes about, yeah. about, about getting it. And, and, and that's another reason why I'm just so glad to have you here and, and why I use my platform to, to share this. Yeah, it's there. It's all there. It's all there. Just, I mean, you guys have Google. We left shit behind. <laughs> you know, it's all Googleable. Um. Yeah, go and seek. And did you the, watch Boys in the Band? Because I think I gave you that as a homework assignment. You did. I I, I watched some clips from it. I haven't seen the. Uh, you gotta watch the whole movie. Yeah, I have to. Most versions of it. Yeah, I watched some clips from the the first one. Imagine that's the only thing you had that said what gay is. Mm-mm. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Imagine if you had no examples for gay other than that. Right. So I don't you know. Yeah. And that's why we are so grateful for you and, and Noah's Ark and, and all the work that you continue to do in your work and, and with the movies and everything. No, thank you. From Zero to I Love You and Hot Boys with Guns, everything that you're doing. Hot guys. Hot guys with guns. <laughs> yeah. There you go, baby. Doug, what is next for you and how can we support you? I am putting together my first real big boy, big budget film down here. Just stay tuned. You know, when something comes out, go see it, watch it. Uh, tune into my, you know, follow me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. and You know, just be there. You know, when we put something out, go see it, support it. Tell your friends if you like it. Let me know if you don't. Um, you know? That's the best thing that, that can happen. Well, I already told you, we're doing a watch party here at my crib, so I will send you a photo when we all get together. Oh, I'd appreciate that. Thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you so much. And lastly, just remind the listeners where they can find you on social media. Uh, at Doug Spearman on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I don't have a TikTok because I don't, I don't need to, you don't need to watch me dance. <laughs> um, and that's it. Thank you, Doug. We're hung up. All right, baby. Yo, isn't Doug such a cool guy? I'm grateful to have the opportunity, not once, but twice, to talk to Doug. I learned a lot in these conversations, but I also felt affirmed. Seen. I hope some of you got that and felt that, too. I'm hung up. Thanks for listening to the Hung Up Podcast. I am your host and producer, Eric Cole. You can find this podcast on social and podcasting platforms by searching at Hung Up Pod. That's H-U-N-G-U-P-P-O-D. Send your episode feedback, love, questions, comments to hunguppod at gmail.com or you can call 484-578-9992 and leave a message and I'll play it on the show. Well, maybe. (laughs) Until next time, stay safe, spread love, peace out.